Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Grant. And usually we start these episodes the exact same way. And Lucas last week tried to completely throw a wrench in the whole plan. So I'm going to do all of our plugging at the beginning backwards. So if you're a... Oh man, I have to remember (laughs) everything that I say. If you are considering your music like a fine wine or a good sandwich then check out our Patreon page. We have exclusive and early content for patrons there for just a few bucks a month. All of our patrons, um, the little money that you give, we appreciate it a whole lot because it helps us make this podcast a reality. If you want to get in on the conversation and meet new good music enjoyers and get information about upcoming episodes and things like that, check out our Instagram and Facebook pages at Good Music Podcast. It's a whole lot of fun there. And... If you like what you hear, like and subscribe, leave a review. And if all you're doing is just listening to this episode, we are once again glad you are here to join us on this journey of discovering new and exciting music. So speaking of new and exciting, Lucas has an announcement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> big, big announcement. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's not my announcement. It's just that... Um, I don't know. I'm sure there's probably those of you that make fun of me for caring about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this much because it, you know, it's kind of like the common idea that it's a joke, but also at the same time, like, I can't not get invested in it every year. Yeah. Especially since I don't really follow, like, the Academy Awards anymore. I don't really, I used to care about that a lot. I'm just, I've always been, like, a big awards show fan. Mm-hmm. I just I, I love the uh, the season of award shows, kind of like the the run up to everything, mm-hmm. and um, it's just it's just something fun for me to kind of follow and get invested into for a series of months. And uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has kind of become like my my official uh, obsession in this area. So. Um, I'm still getting used to this new schedule because it used to be very different. It used to be that you would get uh, nominations around like September, October. And then um, like January ish would be when they would announce the inductees and then they would induct them in like April. Hmm. But then COVID happened and the whole schedule got thrown for a loop. So now the new way of doing things is that we get the nominees announced January to February. Then uh, the actual inductees in April, May and the ceremonies like October, November. So it literally, and it doesn't help that I watched it really late because I didn't yeah. watch the actual ceremony until like a couple weeks ago, but 
I was surprised by, I was just like, oh, it's already this time again. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we got 17 nominees. And I, I feel like this is, I've said this multiple times, multiple years, but this is one of the best um, list of nominees I've ever seen. And the crazy thing is that none of them are like just simply rock and roll. There's no classic rock. There's not even really any like modern rock. Like, I mean, you could like make some stretches on some of these. Are you looking at them right now? I'm looking at them right now. Yeah. So um, the nominees are, I'm going to go as much as I can off of memory. I did this last year. I remember Um, we've got uh, Judas Priest, which is the one that uh, I'm going to be the most intense on hoping that they make it in. Uh, You've got Rage Against the Machine. We've got uh, Fila Cootie, Pat Benatar, um, Lionel Richie, Dolly Parton, MC5, Devo, The Eurythmics, Kate Bush, Beck, uh, Eminem, Tribe Called Quest, Dionne Warwick, uh, The New York Dolls. I'm I'm trying to think of who I've forgotten at this point. We did it. We just did an episode on these people. Oh, Duran Duran! Yes, that was one of the ones I was the most excited about <laughs> because I was just like, "Wow, what great timing that we were able to to do an episode on them right before their rock and roll in uh, nomination. First time they've ever been nominated. That's cool. That's so yeah, cool. that was one of those. It was weird because when I was researching that episode in particular. I had uh, I had looked up to see if they were in, and when I realized, or when I learned that they weren't, I literally thought to myself, "That is a shame." I bet they'll get nominated this year. Here we are, and yeah, it was kind of one of those weird, like almost prophetic moments. That is pretty cool. Maybe you should be on the on the committee or whatever. Oh, I would love to be on the committee and and, and wrong many uh, or right many wrongs, not wrong. Yeah, wrong many, maybe not wrong many rights. That's already been done. Yeah, they've been they've been wronging stuff for a while now. All right. Um, I am really excited to see who's going to get in. I think that this is uh, was that the only one that I missed. Um, I. I think so. Did you miss Carly Simon? Oh, I did miss her. Okay, so that's the that's the only one that that I think you named all the other ones. Okay. If not, it's a quick Google search for those of you who are, you know, into that kind of thing. But I think you named them all. Eminem. I'm surprised he's like. When was his first release? Ninety seven. Yeah. So this is his so first year computer. of eligibility. He's the only one this year that is uh, getting nominated for their first year, like the first year that they're eligible. Oh, wow. I mean, we're, we're at the point now to where like a lot of those artists, we're, we're not going to see that probably happen very much anymore. Mm-hmm. Just because it's just going to, it's going to start moving further and further away from, even though again, it's, 
it's not exclusively a rock group anymore, it's still going to at least for the majority focus on on rock-ish music. Yeah. That makes any sense at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but I mean, like, I expect, like, when Coldplay, it'll be a couple, it's only a couple years away when Coldplay will be first available for nomination. I bet that they'll get nominated and get in their first try. Oh, yeah. No, They're kind of one of the last, like, big, like, bands like that to just really, uh, to really make it so huge and make a, and make a big worldwide impact on, uh, popular music. So, I mean, that's true. I mean, we're getting to the point where, um, where our, our artists who had their first major release 25 years ago are we're slowly moving from bands to individuals yeah and then again philosophy is going to change yeah and and again to be to be very specific the the people that are going to get in their first year of eligibility i think that that is going to start becoming rarer and rarer i mean i would say the foo fighters was like the last great rock band that this could have happened to that could have pulled that off like true rock yeah like just just pure old rock and roll they're they are the last great rock and roll band as far as just bands that made it onto that global arena level yeah that really kind of sucks but i mean if it's gonna be anybody it's gotta be dave Grohl. oh yeah so, so um, now we got to, we got to, actually, I, I talked, I had a good lengthy phone conversation with Ethan Scott today talking about this. I totally even, believe that. Because even before he joined us on the podcast, this was something for a couple of years now, we had kind of made a tradition of like calling each other up and going, okay, nominations are out. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so we've already, we've both kind of placed down our bets on who's going to get in. So, um, I would like to know what are your what are your picks going to be? Who's going to get in this year? You can again. There's there's never like a set number. Mm-hmm. So I pick six. Ethan picks seven. Um, for the first we... time ever, our mat our picks were almost identical. Ah, in fact, they were identical except for his seventh pick. Uh-huh. Which has never happened before. We usually are w- widely different. If if you're fishing for my answers, I have no idea. I just know what I want to happen. Okay, then you can start with that. Uh, oh wait, hold on. Let me. I closed the page, so now I have to pull it up again. Obviously, it goes without saying that I'm going to want my favorites in there. Uh, so that would be like Judas Priest, you know. Rage Against the Machine. Obviously, Duran Duran, you can kind of say, like, that would be... That would just kind of make sense. I wouldn't be surprised if Eminem, although he's, like, not my favorite artist, I wouldn't be surprised if he got in, or Dolly Parton. Um, Probably Eurythmics, just because, I don't know, I feel like they're, they're kind of, like, prime to be 
inducted. I don't recognize a whole lot of the other names. If my, oh, Lionel Richie. I guess. But I wouldn't I wouldn't put money on Lionel Richie getting in. Okay. But I mean I have no idea. So anyway. Well I'll I, give you I'll give you my um my thorough and very obviously correct uh okay. <laughs> very obviously correct and unbiased. Yes. No, actually I I tend not to be biased when I'm making my picks, although my one rule is that um if there's gonna be a metal band in there, my conscience won't conscience won't allow me to root against it. Yeah. So that's always kind of like my you know despite what I may think, it's what I'm gonna pick against because I I will lose my uh my credibility if I don't. Mm-hmm. Um so obviously but I do believe Judas Priest has a good chance this year. Yeah. Because um they received Rock Hall received a pretty nasty um backlash from not putting in Iron Maiden last year. Ah. Uh, uh it, it it ended up becoming a fairly big deal. And so I'm thinking that at this point, like it's gonna it's gonna really start to hurt their credibility if they don't at this point. If they want to if they want to keep the fans happy, they need to do it this year. Yeah. So I I think that this is probably the best chance that they've ever had to get in. That's good. That's now good. Okay. whether or not they will it's a different story, but I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna pray to God. I'm not yeah, I'm not saying it's a for sure locked in bet yet, but their odds have never been better. Mm-hmm. So okay. God please make it happen. <laughs> okay. Um, makes sense though. I think that there's two names on that list that are so bizarre that they've never been in that I think that, and it's the first time they've ever been nominated too, which is insane. But there seems to be those kinds of artists every year that are the, why haven't they ever been nominated before? And the people that you assume are already there Mm -hmm. that I think that the sheer fact of invoking their name, like makes it a guarantee that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that Dolly Parton is one of them. Yeah. That's one of those ones when I saw her on the nomination list, I thought to myself, wait, she's not in. Yeah. It it was it was a genuine shock to me. So I think that, that that's one of those ones that it's a no brainer. It's it's a as good of a guarantee in the same way that Tina Turner was last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Whitney Houston the year before. Um, and I think the other one's Lionel Richie. Really? Few, okay. few people were bigger than him in the 80s. He had like something like seven or eight number one hits. Oh, okay. Well, then there you go. And then any freaking co-wrote We Are the World. That'll do it. Which was one of the biggest songs of the decade, period. But I mean, he had... Un, a near unprecedented I would say as far as like number ones in the 80s 
only Michael Jackson and Madonna did better than him. Wow. He he just about had that decade like in an iron grip. And so he's an, he's another one of those ones where I saw him on the nomination list and I thought he's not in. And then when I read that it was his first time being nominated, I was just like, oh, he's getting in. There's just mm-hmm. there's no question about it. Those are the ones that I will eat my hat if they're wrong. That's how sure of them I am. Well, it's it's not the artist you have to be sure of. It's the selection committee. I know. They've they've done some very strange dumbfounding things over the years. But uh we'll 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 see what happens. And then uh then right under that there's there's this this sliver of it would be it's almost guaranteed. And I would put I would put Duran Duran in that category. They're another one of those bands that it's it's insane that they haven't gotten in yet, but also at the same time they're not they're not quite that like culture defining group that say Lionel Richie or Dolly Parton is. Mm. Those are people that even if you don't pay attention to music, you know who they are. They're icons in American culture. Good point. Yeah, um, Duran Duran is you know more like if you if you it's more of a thing where if you grew up in the eighties, you know who they are, and they are they were very important. But at the same time, they don't carry that that clout that the other two do. But at the same time, I'm almost completely certain that they'll get in. Okay. Plus, also, I really want them to. Yeah, but yeah. I do think that they have a legit. They they're friendly with the Rock Hall because they were they inducted in Roxy Music a couple years before. I think that it just it adds up that they're gonna they're gonna have a good year, and it's the 40th anniversary of Rio, so it's almost kind of like an excuse to say, "Hey, let's do it now." Yeah. And then uh, and then I would put Eminem also in that category. I think that as far as as hip hop and rap is concerned, like there's just about no one as iconic as Eminem. Yeah, um, I did. I did see a statistic that said that he is the best selling rap artist of all time. Wow. And are there are there any rap artists in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah, Jay Z got in last year, and so did. Uh, um, LL Cool J. Um, so it, just, it it I think that would be a fair argument to say Eminem's going to be like a shoe in. Yeah, <laughs> I would. Again, I would. It's it's not as strong of a lock, just because you when it comes to hip hop, I don't know necessarily what they're always going to do, but. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say that if any rap artist has a a good enough case to get in, it's him. And then uh, Judas Priest, obviously. And then my last pick is Pat Benatar. Yeah, that makes I sense. I think was that was that my was that yeah that was six. So I think because she won the fan vote when she first got in, 
nominated a couple years ago. And that is one of those decisions that I still can't process why she didn't get in the first time. Mm. It's that's one of those. And that's why it's, I would have put her as a guarantee if that had not happened. But now Uh that I know that they're willing to pass her by now, I'm like, okay, it's there's some something caused them to not pick her the first time. I don't know why, but you know, she's got another shot. You know, the same thing happened to Radiohead. They didn't get in the first time, and that was kind of considered a really weird move. But then they got in the second time; they got nominated. So Radiohead. Yeah, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. That's pretty interesting. Okay. So who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe it's maybe it's her time the second time around. Maybe. But it's going to be an interesting uh, selection, no matter what. Right. I think I mean, that we've got we've got, we've got a really strong group of nominees. And so, um, again, I apologize. This is not, you know, not normally what we talk about in our episodes, but every time this comes up every year and we'll, well, I know we'll do this again once they reveal who the actual inductees are and either I'm going to be really happy or I'm going to be really pissed off, (laughs) not even sad, just straight up pissed off. Going to take pitchfork and torches and march to wherever the rock and roll hall of fame selection committee is honestly i don't care that much i mean obviously i want the right people to get in but if 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 they snub judas priest again i'm gonna i'm gonna be angry i'm gonna have to get involved yeah (laughs) yeah all right well our artist for today yes now 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 time to uh, transition to the real reason why we're here today. Um, we are continuing our uh, celebration of Black History Month, talking exclusively about African-American artists this month. And we're going to be talking about one of the all-time great artists and influencers, Mr. Ray Charles. All right, so... We'll go right into our first thoughts here. Yeah, I was I was planning on doing that. So one of our songs I have heard once because that um, funk, jazz, improv, whatever you want to call it, band that I did for the, the food truck opening, we were considering doing that song. And then we cut it because it was just too complicated <laughs> for three people to do. Um, so obviously, you know, I was exposed to his music outside of this podcast, which is pretty cool for an artist that I know relatively little about. That doesn't happen very often where I just get exposed once and then forget they exist. I I know he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because I just looked it up because I was yep. curious. Part of the uh, the um, very first class. So there you go. Wow, that's okay. First class. Mm-hmm. Literally first class. Um, that is it. Five. I don't even know what years we're talking about. If I have to guess, 60s. Okay. But that's it. 
All right. So we're so uh, we're, we're you're going to be coming into this fairly blind. Very, yeah, very blind. But those With, are always fun episodes, anyway. Oh yeah. So um, I actually knew a fairly decent amount about Ray Charles. And that's mainly due to the fact that um, I saw the movie Ray when it first came out, like back in 2004. I remember that was I remember that was the very first biopic that I ever saw. And I I I, I remembered that uh, we had the discussion that you didn't know what a biopic was. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, now I do. Yes, you do. And. Um, uh, yeah, Jamie Foxx won an Oscar for playing Ray Charles in that movie. Oh wow! So it was a it was a big film, and yeah, I was I was just starting to I to get old enough to kind of appreciate movies like that movies that weren't just you know like cartoons or action adventure movies. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I saw it, I was just like, I have no idea who this guy is. But for some reason. My parents were just like, "Hey, you know, let's let's watch this movie." And I was like, "Okay, sure." And that was my first exposure to Ray Charles. Was was that movie? Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that after that I um, listened to him or knew much about his music other than like I didn't even know what the songs were called I would just recognize as like oh I remember that from the movie okay so and you know obviously with a biopic it's not going to be 100% accurate but I felt like I had a fairly decent understanding of like what his life was like who he was as a person and one of the things I was interested coming into this is to see like how much is accurate or not Mm. Yeah, because you can because you can really twist things and make for for it to look uh, more presentable on screen. You can kind of mash up a few weeks or months worth of events all into you know fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. Again, I I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You can't yeah, right. always you can't always be you know one hundred percent accurate to the facts and still have an entertaining movie because life is not always in a neat package like that. Yeah. So I understand when movies have to do that, but it does make it to where, you know, if you don't know better and you don't do your homework, you're going to get completely uh, kind of dedicated to the wrong set of facts. And so... I was interested to learn, you know, what's what did they faithfully adapt from his life and what uh, what was strictly for the movies. So, uh, yeah, so that was that was pretty much like so I knew who he was. I understood that he was important. I understood what time period he was in and I knew the songs to a certain extent. But as far as like actually ever taking time to personally listen to him to go out of my way to listen to his music i had never really done that before so i would say i would say that it was a very soft 6 
to mm. where I had respect for him. I knew who he was. I understood why he was important. And I would, I would have said that, yeah, I like several of his songs. Named them. Hmm. That sounds like a six to me. Yeah. So this Maybe was definitely... You even saw the biopic and everything. Yeah. Again, that was my very first exposure to him. Mm, that's a lot. That's a lot of exposure for only a soft six. Mm-hmm. Again, it was it was it was exposure in a way that's not normal for me in these episodes. Right. That's fair. So um, there was there was a bit of an intentional pun saying that you were going to be coming into this blind because I I and you didn't pick up on it, which was very interesting. So I didn't know if you knew this, but. Ray Charles is indeed blind. Is this why all of the pictures with him in it, he has sunglasses? Yep. I, you know, I could have flipped a coin and probably guessed that. Oh, yeah. If you look, if you look on the, uh, on his Spotify wallpaper, you can see the very, very dark sunglasses. Mm-hmm. So Stevie Wonder ain't the only one. Are, are, is this is this pre Stevie Wonder? Yes, because uh, Stevie Wonder's first record when he was eleven years old was a Ray Charles cover album. Oh, oh! I feel like we talked about that. Yeah, we did. We did. Wow! And, and that was kind of a a bit of a a crap move by his uh, by his label to kind of just go, oh, he's blind. Well, let's have him do a, an album of covers by the other famous blind musician. Yeah. It's kind of one of those just like, really, is that all that you saw of him is, you know, blind kid. He must, he must be like Ray Charles when honestly, they're completely different types of musicians. So let's talk about type of musician, right? So is Ray Charles, obviously he's a vocalist. Yes. And he's also a piano player. And does he, does he play any brass instruments? I get the feeling that he does. Yeah, he does actually. He, oh, uh, he is a fairly decent uh, alto sax player. I would have and guessed trumpet, but okay. on on a on occasion would uh, would play on some of his records. Not on any of the ones that we'll be talking about tonight. Oh, that's so weird. Okay, because he usually he mainly did that in the beginning when he couldn't afford to get another player so he would just do it himself but once mm -hmm. he started becoming successful he's just like no i'm not gonna play it myself i've got i want to stay at the keyboard i believe that keyboards your keyboards your uh your first love you kind of don't want to go anywhere else yeah so um and you were you were close on the on the decade, but we're actually going to be mostly focusing on the fifties with a slight moment in the sixties. Wow! Although we're way back, I will say that his most profitable era is the sixties. Okay, but those are more just from like a sheer commercial standpoint. As people look back they'll refer to kind of like the classic period of Ray Charles as being his 50s period. Hmm. 
Okay. There are there are some people that will complain that in the '60s he sold out. He sold out. Oh boy, we have we have those people even back in the '60s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So we're we'll mostly talk about his '50s work. There is one song on this list that does crack into the 60s but it was one of those ones i was just like i have we're gonna do a ray charles episode and i don't talk about this song it would be uh be sacrilege okay so sold out sold out from what like what type of music would ray charles he's he's pretty much considered to be the inventor of soul music of of what we would consider to be like uh, classic R&B. Oh my. So yeah, fairly fairly big deal. Um, that's not to say that R&B didn't exist before him, but it did not sound the way that we would normally associate R&B with until him. What would have what did it have been like before? It would have pretty much it was um, rhythm and blues was more of a way to kind of like talk about commercial blues. Mm -hmm. It was very much harder into the blues side. What Ray Charles did is he is what added kind of that that gospel element to soul to Mm. RB. He was okay. the he was the first one to blend the gospel sound into secular music. And he created quite the controversy because of it. Really? Yes, of people saying that you're you're um you're taking the Lord's music and turning it into something of the devil. Wow. I mean, I you can come to expect that being a being a metal fan yeah <laughs> kind of you can kind of uh grow to appreciate the musicians that put up with that kind of stuff and honestly the way he did it i can understand why people were uh upset really because okay. because it was it's it's quite sexual even for the 50s it's it's there's there's moments in his music where i'm just like i'm kind of surprised he got away with that oh I mean, okay. just 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 look at our just look at the first song on our list. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good point. So that was that's one of those things. Like, even I mean, obviously, you know, I I'm viewing it from the sense of it's the fifties because uh, you know, obviously, everything today is way uh, more shocking. Yeah, but like viewing it from the time period that it was made in, I listened and I'm just like, I'm just, I can't believe that he got away with putting that on tape and it being a hit record. Yeah. So it's, uh, he was absolutely a pioneer and he is considered one of the, one of the godfathers of rock and roll. Not, not necessarily in the first wave of rock and roll because it was already, it was going on simultaneously as he was coming to popularity. If you were, if you were to ask Ray Charles himself, he would have said that uh, 
he did not consider himself part of the rock and roll family. That that mm. is genre. Mm. But it's I would say specifically on the second wave, which is which would have been the British invasion, that um uh. one of the biggest things that they brought into rock and roll was this uh injection of soul. And Ray Charles, I would say, would have definitely been a huge uh, impact on that. Okay. So he's like, he's part of the root system. Of yeah. A lot of the music that we talk about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. That is an understatement. Wow. It's, it's like a, it's a mini music history episode. Yes, very much so. Because yeah, we don't, we don't. I've been trying to make an effort to get into the fifties and mm-hmm. eventually start venturing a little earlier, just so that way we we start to learn more and more about the music that came before everything that we are familiar with. Mm-hmm. So, because uh, we did one last month with the Everly Brothers, and- yeah. And now we're doing it here with uh, Ray Charles. So I'm trying to, I've just, I've never, I never listened to that stuff on my own growing up. Mm-hmm. And so I just was never familiar with it. And so, uh, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to go backwards more and, and get a better appreciation for the music that, uh, that created rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, here we are with rock and roll. At some point, we didn't have it. It's it's really interesting to see how all the puzzle pieces fit together, mm-hmm. and how we got to where we are now. Yeah. Oh, and... that's 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 the the main driving thrill behind what I do here. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it's just it's it's weird to see how every single person on that timeline added something that was distinctly unique that kind of we take for granted. I mean, the music that we're going to listen to on this episode to us isn't super shocking. It's just like, oh, I've heard a song that kind of sounds like this before. But at the same time, it's like, it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't know how to find the words of what I'm saying, but I think you, you know what I mean. That it's just someone had to go around and invent this sound that we all know now. Mm-hmm. So what what type of interesting sounds are going to happen in the future? And what type of, type of other interesting advancements are we going to see um, as we look further into the past with music history and our other episodes that are around this time period and stuff like that? Yeah. So, that's really cool. All right. Well, uh, in case in case you didn't know, um, he has passed away. He I died yeah, back. He, yeah, he died back in two thousand four. Oh wow! Okay, so so quite a time ago. Uh, he died about the same time that the movie came out. Ooh, that's did he at least get to see it? Um. I'm not sure. That's that's a good question for another time. Okay. 
but I mean, I guess that that helped the popularity of the movie, which is mm-hmm. like that's that's good for him that it's you know pe- there's now this he has the I'm gonna use the word biopic about him so people can kind of learn about him, which is good. It's like how when uh, when when Prince died, they played Purple Rain on every single channel. Mm-hmm. It's like now people can actually know the significance of this person. Yeah, um, it's it came out the same year he died. Yeah, so I'm I'm not sure if he. I'm sure that he was involved in the in several different parts of the uh, production, mm-hmm. and I would be surprised surprised if he didn't see like a rough cut at least oh yeah because it did release it looks like four months after four or five months after he passed yeah so yeah i'm 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 sure that he saw it in some way or another Mm -hmm. that is a long movie two and a half hours there must have been a lot of content Yes, I remember it being a pretty hefty movie. I would highly it's a quality made movie. So let's let's talk about some of the content, maybe not necessarily of the movie, but of his career. So how did he get started? So um one of the first things I'll point out and as a big difference between him and Stevie Wonder is that he was not born blind. Oh. Okay. He actually became blind when he was about seven or eight years old. Was it an accident or just? No, it was. Uh, it's not. It's not daredevil or anything. No toxic waste. Mm-hmm. Um, no, he just he grew up in a very impoverished part of Florida mm-hmm. called Greenville, mm. and I mean his home life and growing up as like literally as poor as you can possibly be while still having a house to live in. He said he didn't own his first pair of shoes until he was like seven. Oh my. And just, and literally all that they had was enough money to get whatever food they needed. That he had like two outfits and that was about it. He had to make all of his own toys and you know, that's, that's all he had. And so, uh, when he became sick, he didn't get to really like go to like any doctors. Like he went to some like really cheap doctors, Mm -hmm. but, um, he describes it as just, they were like, I don't know, something's going on here. You're just going to have to deal with it. Oh my but he had a very, very strong mother. Uh, she was a single mother. And mm-hmm. she taught him very early in his life that uh, that pretty much doesn't matter if you're going blind or not. You have to learn to take care of yourself. And you have to expect that no one's going to give anything to you. And that you shouldn't uh, expect things to be easy because you're blind. Care of yourself, and you have to make it work no matter what. And and the way she would always tell him is that someday I'm not going to be here. And we don't know, you know, life is 
a big mystery. I could be here for 80 years. I could be here for eight days. So you better figure out now how to live without me because someday you will. That's probably pretty intense for a seven-year-old. Yeah, but at the same time, I believe that that's what gave him the abilities to succeed in life. And he always talks about it. It's just like, no matter where, what part of, of life I was in, it was my mother's voice. And she ended up dying when he was like 12 years old. Wow. And he uh, went to boarding school. He had to go to a special school for blind people and lived a, from a from the time he was about eight, fairly separated from any kind of adult uh, assistance. Mm-hmm. And so that gave him the drive to uh, to succeed and to not let his blindness be any kind of handicap. He said that never in his life has he used a cane or a seeing eye dog. Because he's like, that's what I associate with blind people. And those types of blind people elicit pity from and are always having to have assistance from others. And he's just like, no. I still have my other senses. There are tricks that I can use to get around. He said that he would ride his bike through town. That he would, that he had little tricks when he was on the bus that he knew what stops he had to get off of. Uh, He even rode a motorcycle at one point. That's intense. Yeah, he just, he always paid attention everywhere he went to where he knew every way inside and out. And again, it did help that he saw before he went blind. So he, he knew what things were. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a thing to where he was just like, he has no idea what things could possibly look like. Mm-hmm. So he had a, he could see things in his mind of what, of what they, pro- things probably looked like. And he just was able to create this this way of getting around without having to need anyone's help. Wow. That okay, that kind of that really is kind of daredevil. It it is. He and, and Stevie Wonder is really the same way. Like mm. he doesn't he doesn't walk around like with a cane. Like he just like walks. I've seen footage of Steve one. He just walks around the studio. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows where things are. Mm-hmm. Like there's just, there's just something about if, and the, and his upbringing was the same thing. Like he wasn't treated like a little blind, helpless kid. He was treated just like a normal kid. Got the same experience growing up that others did. And it, when that happened to them, it gave them this ability to just go, I'm fine. I have, Ray Charles always talked about it. It's like, I feel like I can see better than people that can see. And he's like, now there's certain situations that I'm at a disadvantage. Like if a fight breaks out, I, before I go to a venue, I know exactly where every exit is because if a brawl breaks out, that's where I'm going to be in trouble because I'm not going to see a bottle flying at me. I'm not going to see a fist coming at me. I know that if, you know, I know where the nearest window is that I can jump out of. <laughs> well, but hey, I mean, that's, that's, 
that's a way to to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Do now, as far as the, as far as the music is concerned, he uh, got into playing piano very young when he was like four or five. There was a uh, like a little um, town tavern that uh, had an old piano on it that the owner took took a liking to Ray and just would start showing him different things to play. And then when he went blind, he just continued playing. And there was a jukebox there as well. And he would just, he would sit there anytime he got the, even the littlest bit of extra money, he always spent it on the jukebox. And then he would just also listen to what anyone else was playing. And he memorized everything that he listened to. Ooh. Okay, he's he he learns by ear mm-hmm. very quickly, and he will still say that his biggest inspiration and his fa- favorite piano teacher was that was Mr. Pitts, who was the guy that owned that restaurant. Wow, and that he was just like if that man had had gone a different career path and decided to pursue music full time, he would have been one of the all time greats. Instead, he just chose to keep it as a hobby and, you know, have a normal job. But he had every bit of ability and feeling and soul as the greats did. And that he was, he was like, he's the one that taught me everything that I know. That's cool. That's pretty interesting. Okay. Well, you gotta imagine, like, being that guy and then watching Ray Charles increase in fame. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh, another thing is that his, uh, that's not his full name. His full name is Ray Robinson. Ray so Charles. Charles is his middle name. The reason he dropped it was because there was a famous boxer named uh, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson. And so he's like, that'd be confusing if there was two Ray Robinsons. Uh, yeah. I want to have my own name so people aren't confusing me for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't confuse him for a boxer. That would not be... <laughs> I mean, I'm sure people wouldn't have, but it was it was a it was a determination to say like I don't want to share my name with anyone. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to have a unique name that's just mine. Right, right. Well, you know, handle things yourself. Mm-hmm. So, when his mom died, he essentially made a choice to drop out of school, and dedicate music full-time so he was still like a fresh teenager when this happened like 13 14 years old and just left school never went back and Mm -hmm. just at that point he was a very gifted piano player was just starting to figure out his voice and he just immediately started just any city that he went to and he would move cities about every year He would play that town circuit until he realized that he couldn't advance any further. Then he'd just pack up and move to another city. He would always figure out, okay, when I get somewhere, I need to find where's the hotel, where's the restaurant, and where's the nightclub. If I can find those three things when I first get into a city, that's all I need. And I can figure it out from there. Was that – did he get to the point where he could figure that out himself? Oh yeah, he always he could figure it out the first day. Like he could just by hearing. Well, no, like or... he would find the hotel first, and then he would talk to the reception and say, "Hey, what's the cheapest place to get something to eat?" And then he would get detailed directions on how to get there, 
would usually walk it a couple times to get the route memorized. And then he'd go, okay, now where's, where's the nightclub? Cause that's going to be where you're going to gig and make money and play music. Right. And so he had a system. He's like, once I get those three things squared away, like everything else falls into place. And he would just network and meet people and convince them, hey, I, you know, need a piano player. I'll get up there and play with you guys. And he played with everybody. Like, not like everybody is in famous, but it was just like, no matter what style of music it was, there was an extended period of time where he played a Billy band. Where he, that's where where he got his affinity for country music, which ended up part of his career in the '60s. The the part where people claim that he sold out it was oh. when he switched from being a pure R and B musician to being essentially a country artist. Well, that's what he wanted to do, I guess. Oh yeah, he and the way he defends him, that move is saying just like I, you know, I wasn't. Uh, soullessly switching to this genre because it would make me money. But he's like, but also keep in mind point that I always recorded music to make money. He he never made claims that he's like this, you know, like the art comes first. And no one did back at that time. Mm. Except for maybe like the really hardcore jazz guys. But if you were any kind of like radio musician, like there was no such thing as like this grand artistic vision that didn't really start to become a thing till the sixties, till the Beatles. Oh, right. Cause they were weird. Yeah. They were the first ones to really kind of just go, no, we're going to write what we want and we're going to chase our artistic vision. Oh, and by the way, we'll just keep scoring number one hits along the way. Cause we're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, Ray Charles has three number one hits. That's that's and three all, more than I got, and th- all three of them were in the in the sixties, and one of them we'll talk about tonight. Ooh, okay. So, but yeah, so he just he learned how to play everything, including like he, and I think this is one of the most surprising things that I learned during my research was that he is an incredible jazz pianist. Which is why I wanted to have one of his jazz songs on the set list mm-hmm. as a way to kind of show a little bit more of the the uh, the breadth of what he could do. Not just that he was a, a boogie-woogie soul piano player or mm-hmm. someone that could just play, you know, standard pop. Like, he is a hardcore piano player. And when you take into the fact that he's blind and he's playing some incredibly complex jazz piano Mm -hmm. that I literally probably couldn't learn how to do if my life depended on it. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it shows you how good he was. Well, it's absolute genius on the piano. He's focused on the sound. He's focused on the sound and not what the keys look like in front of you. And that's like, that's a thing that when I'm like sitting in front of a piano and I'm just like jamming with myself is I will look at I will see scales and I'll see chords on the keyboard Mm -hmm. and I'll just be like oh this would sound really nice and I fall into playing the same progressions and chords over and over again Mm -hmm. and having a the the inability to see the keyboard 
you know, that you would, you would think that would be kind of a handicap. And to some extent it kind of is, but you also free yourself from those same, um, like trip ups that someone who can see the keyboard has. And also being in jazz, you know, you, you have that ability to kind of experiment with different intervals and different chords and weird things. And in jazz, what sounds good sounds good. And there's less rules than, than other genres. That's why some of the, some of the weirdest artists today call themselves jazz artists. And you, and you're listening to it and like, Oh, there's no saxophone. There's no like smooth ooze or piano or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's jazz because it's just it's it it is what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just that's the only way you could describe it. And so, I imagine that 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 his condition probably helped in a weird way. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I probably will never understand. It's uh, it's such a crazy thing to be able to to play like that and just it's pure instinct right and it's almost like you have to uh you have to be just incredible at the piano in order to even pull it out pull it off yeah yeah so Uh, he's he's traveling around playing with random musicians Mm-hmm. Whoever he can find. So he's about 21, 22 years old. So almost 10 years. Oh, wow. Of this process. So he's obviously I mean, blowing everybody away. Yes. And, you know, he gets to play with a lot of people that eventually ended up becoming all time greats. Like one of his best friends during this period was Quincy Jones. Oh, I've heard that name. Well, yeah. He's, he's probably. Um, the most successful uh, record producer of all time. He's the guy that made uh, Michael Jackson's three huge records. He made Off the Wall, Thriller, and Bad. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, as well as being just an incredibly uh, accomplished uh, trumpeter as well in the jazz world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That was like that was like one of his best friends and one of his constant collaborators in like the late forties, early fifties. Mm. So um, finally, the thing that really kind of started his career was when he met a guy that you know music fans might know, a guy named Amat Erdogan, who is probably the most important behind the scenes man in music history. Okay. Okay. Whenever that... in the in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, whenever they give uh, the inductees of people that are behind the behind the scenes, like people that are production or in the record label or um, you know A and R guys, it's always the Amat Erdogan Award, Lifetime Award. And Atlantic Records, co-founder Atlantic Records. Yep, correct. Mm-hmm. Wow, he was, he was the owner of that. I mean, so many people he jump-started. He was the guy, if you remember from our Aretha Franklin episode, he was the guy that got Jerry Wexler to go uh, to go snatch her up, and it was her first record with them that made her a superstar. 
he's the one responsible pretty much for getting Led Zeppelin together. Wow. Um, the if you have you ever watched Celebration Day, the the big uh, reunion show that they did in two thousand seven? I didn't. They literally got together, and the occasion was a benefit show for the recent passing of Ahmad Erdogan. Whoa, there's some weird stuff in here. He was he's responsible for owner of a lonely heart. Look at that. Yep, he is the one that. Uh, jump-started Phil Collins' solo career. When Phil Collins showed him in the air tonight, he was the one that was just like, yes, we're getting you a record deal. Like, I mean, you want to talk about an absolute legend. This is the guy. And when he met Ray Charles, he had just started Atlantic Records, and Ray Charles was his first person to sign. Wow. Wow. So, so like two two legends starting something legendary together at the same time. Yeah, literally just like showed up as a at his apartment one night and was just like, Hey, you know, I just started Atlantic Records. We just moved here from Turkey. Um, we love music and we've heard you, we think you're awesome. Why don't you sign with our fledgling record company? Ray was like, Okay, sure. <laughs> Man. And that was that was history. And Ray Charles was their not only their first signing, but he was their first like major hit maker. Like he wow. like Atlantic was built by uh, Ahmed and Ray Charles into mm-hmm. one of the biggest music labels in history. Yeah. I don't know if they're I don't know if they're still big, but you know back in the day that was that was a unstoppable force. I don't know. I mean, you listen, you listen to a lot of stuff that we talk about on this podcast. Look at the bottom, the bottom listing of, you know, copyright. A lot of them say Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Man, King Crimson. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Anyway, this is, that's a, that's a gold mine right there. Mm-hmm. All of this stuff. Deep Hackett Genesis. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna not dig any further or we're gonna be talking about Atlantic Records for the rest of the episode. Yeah. So um so yeah, that was that was the moment when um when history was made. And it was specifically um his song I've Got a Woman that was his first big crossover hit in nineteen fifty four. Wow. That's old. Which is which is pre rock and roll, and that's the that's the song that everyone points to as saying like that's the moment that soul music was born. Oh, that song in particular. Wow! So that's like that's like the helter skelter, like metal equivalent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Which we'll we'll get into more detail about that in our second section. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, um, once that happened, he his uh, star started to quickly rise, but he still wasn't having huge success in uh, in the main pop charts, like on on uh, on R and B radio. He was dominating, but he 
he hadn't exactly crossed over yet. And it's, even though Atlantic was growing big, they were still not the biggest. I would say that Atlantic truly became a titanic force in the 60s. You know, they were still they were still a fledgling label. And so at the end of the at the end of the 60s or not sorry, at the beginning of the 60s, he got a a huge offer from CBS Records that just was such an absurd level that Ray was just like, I'm sorry, I have to take this. Is there any way that you, if you can match what they're giving me, I'll stay with you guys. But I would mm-hmm. be insane to turn this down. And, and Ahmet just told him, we don't, we can't match it. It's, it's too big. You need to take this. We, we can't do for you what they're going to be able to do for you. Mm-hmm. And let him go. And he, you know, Ray has has expressed very adamantly that it's like if there was no bad blood, there was no falling out. It was purely a a money situation. It was nothing personal. So at this point, I guess he wasn't rolling in it. No, not completely. It was when he signed to CBS. That's when he started making serious money. That's when he started getting number one hits. Ooh. And the thing that he credits to his success, both with Atlantic and CBS, is that they never told him what to write, what to record. They, he didn't have producers telling him, you need to play this. You need to make it sound like that. When he went country, he did receive a little bit of resistance from CBS. But ultimately, it wasn't like this huge knockdown fight. They, you know, there's just the initial meetings were like, well, I don't know. This might be a risky move. But then Ray was just like, trust me, it'll work. And they're like, okay. At that point, he probably had made a name for himself. Mm-hmm. He, he had been sure enough that, you know, they trusted where he was leading. So, yeah, he... He had complete creative control, which is always interesting to learn because then you can't ever use the um, the excuse of, well, the I bet the label pressured him to do this or do that, to make that kind of song, to make that kind of album. Mm-hmm. Everything that he released was something that he wanted to do and believed in very sincerely. Does that include posthumous releases like are there any is there some big vault somewhere um well that comes to the issue of his very spotty and strange selection in in spotify because it would seem that pretty much all of his albums with cbs are just completely gone they're not there that's weird and even his atlantic stuff you can only really find them in like compilations. There's a couple of there's a couple of his albums. And then a good portion of like his really late career stuff is on there, including whatever is posthumous. Mm-hmm. But I had to really kind of look in some nooks and crannies to find some of the songs that I needed for this episode. Oh. I would have expected for someone who's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to have a little bit more on Spotify. Well, it, again, it's not up to the artist. 
it's it's all about the labels and especially the older that an artist is the harder it is to get a complete reckoning of their discography because some of those really old contracts like i'm sure that it's just they're they're almost impossible to negotiate Mm. so there's it's very obvious that all of his stuff like pretty much everything from in the from like 62 to to the 90s just about is like gone yeah not on spotify but you can find a good bit of the songs in different compilation records it look yeah it looks like everything after 61 is just live or compilation until 91 yeah Mm -hmm. maybe i could be wrong about that but man that kind of sucks but you still have stuff from the 50s like you still have all that stuff here well again that's everything you're seeing album wise is not completely there in order for me to feel like i had a fairly comprehensive look at what he did in the 50s i had to go to a specific compilation record called the entire atlantic recordings which is where two of our songs are gonna come from the entire atlantic recordings oh my goodness 155 songs oh my this was probably a really incredible listening preparation experience it was doing just the atlantic period even though again there's going to be one song that's from the cbs era but just because again i couldn't resist putting it on there right and um that ended up being about seven hours worth. Oh my. Oh geez. 14 hours of listening on its own. Mm-hmm. And then um my my research material was uh his autobiography, Brother Ray. So it was literally from his own words that I got to hear about his life, which was oh, very cool. helpful. That's cool. But that was a 13-hour book. Okay, well that's a that's intense. I had to, I had to work. The the links Which, that uh, links links uh, have you can pronounce it effectively through the medium of a iPhone uh, that you had to go to for this episode is. Would you say Would you say that's about? That's about average. That's about average. Oh my goodness. I would say that's like middle of the road. Just about any time that I do like a volume two, I would say like add 50% to that. Maybe even double it. Because most of the time when I'm doing volume twos, it's people that have a huge discography. And and what makes it is that a lot of these volume twos I haven't done uh, ranked playlist for before and so i have to do extra especially if i'm like like with prince last week mm-hmm. it ranking would have and research would have been a lot easier if i had done if i had ranked all the way up to purple rain at that point before then i could have done started just with around the world in a day and mm-hmm. i could have gotten a lot more added to it but because of the fact that I had to start from the beginning and get all the way to Sign of the Times, 
that made it an exhausting <laughs> endeavor. Yeah. Oh, geez. Oh, my. So, yeah, volume twos usually require a lot more work, but the way I can get it done is the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm just letting you guys see some of the secrets of how we put these together. <laughs> the fact that I have music history the week before, those take way less work because I'm not listening to a particular person's entire discography because with those people, it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. I try and do listen to a good amount, but the research is way less strenuous. And so I'll usually get a start on whatever my volume two is. Mm-hmm. And I end up usually always needing it. Like yeah. with Prince, it literally came down to like, I was finishing watching the movie Under the Cherry Moon like an hour before we started recording. Oh, man. And I was listening to Brother Ray about an hour before we started recording tonight. <laughs> And I didn't oh even finish God. it, but I was just like, I have to at least make it to the CBS merger. If I can at least get that far, I can finish the rest on the volume two. So is that where we end the story here? Yes. Because definitely, um, I have I have two ideas of what I would do for a, a Ray Charles volume two. Either I would go to the CBS era, or I could probably do an episode just on his jazz stuff, because it was an amazing amount of it and an amazing quality. Oh, wow. Okay. So I could go one of two ways, but yeah, so that's kind of where, as far as like the, the story of Ray Charles, that's where we'll, we'll leave things off today. So, um, any other thoughts about like who he was as an artist and his style um i mean just the man was a genius he pioneered a brand new style and Mm -hmm. i think that at this point we could go ahead and take a break and move on to our next section oh yes especially with the lengthy conversation about the rock and roll hall of fame we had before we even got on this topic (laughs) yeah yeah so we will take a break here and when we come back we're going to talk about the six songs of Ray Charles uh, that we picked of Ray Charles for this episode. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We just spent a whole lot of time talking about, yes, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but also one of the members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Ray Charles, and his very interesting rise to fame and fortune and great musical ability and the influence of his that we see around us in the world of music today. 
Now it is time to talk about the actual music. Of course, this is the Good Music Podcast, so you can't you can't get through an episode without actually talking about some songs. So we're going to do that in our six songs set, which we like to do every single episode. It's a nice listening experiment. Experiment. Whoa. Experience. Maybe for some I guess you could call it an experiment. You could it's call cool. it an experiment. Yeah, that's true. I was about to say that. If you've never been introduced to Ray Charles, then this really is an experiment to see if you like it. It'll be a good first introduction. If you're familiar with Ray Charles, hopefully these songs you'll recognize and you'll love, and listening to them in this order will bring something new out of them. If you do want to listen to these songs, once again, we highly recommend that you do that. Every single episode, we highly recommend that you do that. Down in the description of this episode, there is a link to a Spotify playlist with not only these songs, but all of the songs from all of the episodes, past, present, and future. On your way, scrolling down to the bottom of the list where these songs are, if you see other songs that you are a little bit interested in, then be sure to check those out as well. We have an episode on that artist and that song. So, without any further ado, what I say? Oh, you tricked me there for a second. <laughs> so this is so this is the one that um, this is what I say parts one and two. Uh, this is the one that I was familiar with going into this episode, and I didn't I didn't recognize that it was him um, at first because I didn't I didn't remember like who the artist was when we were talking about this song. He was just like, oh yeah, this is this cool song. We should do it. Um, and I didn't know that I knew, like, obviously I recognized it for the first half of the song, but I didn't know that I knew it until it got to that really interesting section, kind of two thirds to the way in. All right. So what I'd say this, this was his, um, this was kind of the song that enabled him to make his big CBS move. So this was kind of towards the end of his time with Atlantic. And this is the song that opens up the movie Ray. So it's kind of one of those, like, it's just, it has such a great, like, like building aspect to it. The way that it starts with that electric piano Mm -hmm. and it just slowly kind of builds up from there into this big, like, just behemoth sound at the end with the backup singers and and the level of the vocals is intensifying mm-hmm. it's uh it's a great way to start the set oh yeah oh man you're right because they do they do the little breaks in there in the beginning you do a little bluesy line mm-hmm. it's it's the best way to introduce ray charles himself you start off with just all that keyboard work and then finally he comes in with the vocal and it's it's just it's a great build all the way to the end yeah that's true i didn't realize this song had built or was building and that's that's such a interesting like electric piano sound Mm-hmm. obviously like everyone's keyboard has that sound on it and you turn it on and you're like oh this is this doesn't sound like a piano at all but yeah i don't know i mean it's it's songs like this that use really weird sounds that show you the the talent of the composer 
yeah. to be able to turn something that otherwise isn't very impressive into like uh, like an actual good song. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things I was really interested because one of the one of the iconic scenes for a movie is yes, yes, this opens the movie, but then there's a separate segment where he is essentially like improvising and writing this song on the spot during a live show watching there's no way that happened in real life that's just one of those things where like they need an excuse to put the song in so he's gonna oh he's gonna come up with the song live on the spot but then sure enough that's actually what happened really (laughs) yes oh my god so when he got to that part in the book i was just like oh dang it i guess i mean obviously you know the way that's played in the movie is that he like perfect that first time which obviously is not true but the story was is that he had 12 minutes to fill at a show and he had played through all of his material and so he literally like just told the the band just like hey i'm gonna play in this key you just follow my lead we'll improvise through it background singers just repeat what i say and here we go and uh, they just end that and he says that he normally does not like to improvise live that he likes to test songs before he plays them to the crowd just mm-hmm. to know that it's just like this is something that i like this is something that's going to go over well he doesn't like to audience test and this mm-hmm. was kind of a, a, a rare exception and mm-hmm. when he finished playing the song people started storming the stage going where can we buy that record i love that song and he was just like oh, i just made it up here on the spot but he saw it got a great reception. So he's like, maybe I'll play it next show. And so they play a next show and the same thing happened. Where can we get the record? Where can we get the record? So that's when he called Ahmed and was like, Hey, I'm coming over. We got to record this now. Wow. He said, that's the only time in his career that he's ever had in a moment like that, where he like stops what he's doing. He's like, we got to go into the studio and make this. Wow. So that's how that's how that song came to be. That's intense. That's yeah. cool though. That is super cool. And it's amazing because it's you know, it's it's basic twelve bar blues. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's on a on a musical, like just the, the structure of it, very super unique. And yet I think what's the most interesting thing is that if you can take the 12 bar blues and create something that is unique sounding and is, and is exceptional. I think that that's like one of the best things you can do as a composer. Mm. When you can, it's very Bach that way. Mm -hmm. You're, you're, he's following the rules exactly. And, and yet it's, better than most other people yeah now the the song wasn't immediately a hit because of the uh of the groans and utterances and in the second part of the song Mm -hmm. it got banned in a lot of places oh that's pretty funny (laughs) and i mean it's it's not just like innuendo like it's very much like in your face like this this song is about sex yeah it's it's not at all trying to hide that fact Mm -hmm. 
And so, um, you know, that it, it was very heavily censored. But then what started happening was that uh, white artists started covering this song and all of a sudden it started gaining traction. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Charles was like, well, what's the difference? Is, is white love making uh, cleaner than black love making? You know, it's the same song. And, the, and they're not changing anything. It's still all the grunts and oohs and uhs. Mm-hmm. But now all of a sudden it's not inappropriate. And so whenever he pushed that idea, he was just like, you know, now that people know that the song exists and are accepting it, let's put my version out. Because my version's better than all the ones that they're doing anyway. Mm-hmm. And then that's when it finally became a hit. It got all the way up to like number six on the pop charts. Wow. It's his highest... That was his highest charting single when he was at Atlantic. Number six. Do you, is there a possibility it could have gone to number one if they kind of released it immediately? Um, I don't know. That it, it's an interesting what if. Obviously, it didn't happen that way, but no, I I don't think so. I think that it's one of those songs that, like. Just from sheer quality, it should be. Mm-hmm. It's one of those songs that it's a shame that it's not, but in a way, it kind of does feel a bit ahead of its time. So yeah, it is kind of like ahead of its time. And if you think about it, like that that section two thirds of the way through, where everybody suddenly starts talking, and then um, he's like, "Wait, hold up, hold up," and they start the song again. It kind of breaks the fourth wall in a way that you don't see a lot of songs do even yeah it's a really weird moment but Mm -hmm. it's it's another one of those things that just like helps give the song such a unique identity yeah yeah it really does and i mean obviously that that was planned but it doesn't feel like it Mm -hmm. first here you're just like okay so this must have been like some like bootleg of a jam session or something. And I guess that was the whole point because trying to recreate the the feeling of it being very spontaneous. Yeah. It's super cool. Like uh like Dr. Feelgood. That whole album just has the whole feeling of of you're watching Motley Crue play live. Because they mix it that way to make it sound like you're in an arena or something and and to try to like um and a lot of rock is that way. That yeah, it's that cap- trying, capturing the live sound. Trying to that's, capture that's one that, of the cliches. Live sound. Yeah, and so this is this is a way to capture that live feeling in a much different way, not using million pounds of reverb and delay, and you know, adding like little vocal cues here and there or something. It's it's totally not something you see in other songs. Anyway. Soapbox time number two. I'm I'm off now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't so, I don't need to mess around anymore. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right, so that is our that is our next one. Mess around. So are we still with Atlantic here? Yes, we are. Um, this song was actually written by Amet Erdogan. Oh. And this was the song that he brought to Ray Charles, like as a thing, just like, hey, I've got this cool song. You want to record with us and you can do it. And he was like, yeah, sure. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it ended up, it wasn't a huge hit, but it was a fairly decent uh, uh, minor hit. Mm-hmm. So, but it was, it's kind of, it's one of those songs I feel like has uh, um, grown in stature as time has gone on. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, uh, it's, I think of the very, um, famous scene from, uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, where, have you ever seen that movie? No. <laughs> That's a great movie. Um, but John Candy's character is, is driving in the middle of the night with, um, Steve Martin sleeping in the, in the other seat, and he's jamming out to mess around and, like, the solo section comes out and he's like air playing the piano and then switches to the saxophone. And it's just like, he's just being a goofball, but the whole point is mm-hmm. that he's not paying attention to the road while he's uh, out and, and chaos ensues. That, that does seem like a very Steve Martin, John Candy situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You need to watch it. It's one of the all-time great comedies. Oh, Definitely man. one of the all-time great travel movies. There's there's just something about classic comedy movies. It's from the yeah, it's from like the late 80s. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Well, enough messing around talking about people messing around listening to mess around while behind the wheel. <laughs> in a movie that's not titled Mess Around. So this was this was one of the songs that made me think, oh, he's probably like some sort of brass instrument player. And certainly some of the upcoming ones. Because it sounds like maybe he was like, he sang and then he overdubbed like whatever the solo instrument is. Because no, it sounds you like they're kind of the same brain. You, their overdubbing did not exist in the fifties. That was Wait, that really? was not a thing. They didn't. So all of this is live. Yes, that was that was part of the the thing that like you know made you have to be legit is that you know you had to you had to get it live in the studio. Oh man, Herman Lee could not make it in the fifties. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the funnier things you've ever said <laughs> that was just the first thing that came to my mind and, and it took me about five seconds to convince myself that i need this to say it yeah i mean again uh that was one of the things that the beatles pioneered was this idea of multi-tracking and because their first like three or four records were all done live in in one take in the studio it wasn't really until like the mid '60s that the idea of you can not record everything at once became a thing, and even then, for the most part, that was only done to like vocals and guitar solos. The idea of like piecing together something, especially if you were like a one man act, back then one man acts could only be that if they were playing one instrument and singing. Which is pretty much how Bob Dylan got his start. That's so weird to think about. 
I know it's because we've we've moved so far beyond that in the yeah modern day. The amount of the amount of stuff that you can do as one individual, one person in you know a studio apartment, literally a studio apartment. You can do so many incredible sounding things now. But I guess that just proves Ray Charles really is the real deal. If this is something where there's there's other musicians in the room, you guys have a limited number of of tape. Oh yeah, limited and, number and, of takes. Yeah, and amount of time. Like there was no you know working on a song for several days. Usually, you only got like two or three takes on a song before you were just like we. If it wasn't coming together in that amount of time, you just had to ab- abandon ship and move on. Wow. So you had to you had to come into the studio like there's no writing in the studio, there's no experimenting. Like you rehearsed c- pretty intensely before you even set foot in the studio. Well, that's what that's what you should do now. A lot of producers talk about that. They hate it when bands come in and try to experiment with things. That you should you should come in good musicians come into the studio with their songs completely thought out. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's good because in this in this context, back in the fifties, right? You have to have it that way, so it forces you to be to be focused on every single detail, and everything is completely worked out before you even get into the studio. Yeah, you know your parts. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's literally because, like, I know I'm bringing up the Beatles a lot but it's right. a it's an apt comparison you look at their first album they recorded the entire album in one marathon 13 hour session that's pretty cool though yeah I mean people don't make records like that anymore mm-hmm. yeah no I, so, I certainly couldn't so yeah the whole the whole thought of of him like laying down like a, a piano part and then going over and doing a horn part that didn't happen he would only play alto sax if he wasn't playing piano on that track which is why he didn't do it very often so he's not playing sax here no it's the law is the long story short yes hmm. okay so he... and i guess he's not on any of the songs no and not, I, 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 I think I had said that on the on the right. first segment. Right. I remember now. I remember now. Okay. I remember now. I remember. <laughs> I don't know what you're referencing, but I feel like I know it. Operation Mind Crime, man. Oh, oh. Yeah. Man, that was a weird album. Sweet Dreams, you bastard. Anyway. Anyway. So, um, yeah, I, I just confirmed my, uh, I was just like, I know that this was, this was a minor hit, but I couldn't remember like where it had charted. So it didn't chart anywhere on the pop charts, but it did go to number three on the R and B charts. And it was his first charting single. Okay. So as far as like, kind of like the importance of where it falls in, in the story of Ray Charles, that's, that's a fairly significant, uh, uh, little statistic. And also because it's a really great, we haven't even talked about just like how good this song is. 
Oh yeah, it's got it's got this weird swing to it. Yeah, but at the same time it's just it's it's got a it's got this intensity and power to it. It's it's like double time polka. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but like that description's really bad. It's just that's the first thing that stood out to me was just the weird drum beat. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just like there's there's some speed here. Especially like those those piano runs at the beginning where it's like it's like whoa. <laughs> the guarantee was probably picked up whenever he was playing in his uh in his country bands. It's very um it's got a it's definitely got kind of like this this yeehaw aspect to it. Oh but, my gosh, it does. But then also injected with pure soul. This sounds like something that they would... You could play this in Back to the Future. And when, like, they have the the prom. Yeah. It feels like, it feels like you could just have a bunch of people just, like, square dancing to this. Yeah, just dancing, period. And that's, and I mean, that's pretty much what the song's about. It's about, it's about uh, having fun and cutting loose, messing around. Oh, right. Had a, had a few things to say about that. (laughs) Yeah. He he was a man that did not believe in monogamy. Let's just put it that way. Oh. And like, did not, it wasn't like a secret. Even, even when he was married, like he didn't hide the fact that he pretty much got with whoever, whenever he wanted. Okay. Okay. But again, this this was not written by him. It was written mm-hmm. by Ahmet. So to put any of his specific uh, philosophies and views on it would be incorrect. But I think it's an interesting thing to point out. That is that is. Uh, certainly interesting. I'll say that. So, I don't have a pun for this next one. I'm really sorry. Ha! It's really hard. My melancholy baby. Yeah. So this so. is um this is our jazz pick for the episode. And I had been yeah. thinking the other day. I was just like, we haven't done a jazz one since we did the Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. And I was I was already concerned. I was just like, I've got to, I need to do another jazz one because it's been a long time. And the main reason I don't think about it is just because jazz is not one of those genres that I just like will casually listen to. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't think to do it. But then I I started to listen to Ray Charles, and I was just like, oh wait, we kind of got a little bit of a of jazz here. I could I could use this. Oh yeah, it's just it's nice and jazzy. It's just exactly what you would expect from kind of that very soulful, semi-smooth jazz. Mm-hmm. Which was but, pretty much the flavor of the fifties. But I mean, smooth, man. smooth jazz was the preferred method of jazz once you got to the fifties. That's why Miles Davis was so popular. When it's good, it's good, and there's just some kind of magic to to good smooth jazz. It's all a the, kind all, of magic. All the licks are there. 
you know, the main motif is just, mmm. And when it, when it goes out of the scale, it's just right. And it feels like very organic. And that's like, this whole song is just very organic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's perfectly pleasant. Mm-hmm. It, it's relaxing and um yeah we we really need ethan to really yeah. hammer home here the uh <laughs> the, the finer subtleties of this kind of music right i i would eat a nice steak listening to this song oh yeah that's just like a marvelous it class it's just very classy music Versus like versus crazy jazz or like weird yeah like bebop jazz. yeah it's 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 got a level of sophistication to itself it takes itself seriously enough to sound like proper music much less than something like what I'd say where that song doesn't take itself too seriously yeah it's it's or even mess around where it's it's kind of more kind con- like the fun aspect right you know let's just let's just you know dance and boogie and have a good time so really you could say we're seeing a completely different side already yes and that was that was part of the plan was to uh to show immediately a different side of what ray was able to do so is he playing saxophone here or piano piano oh of course because he didn't play saxophone on any of them why do i keep asking that anyway i know you just won't let it go i just won't i just won't yeah but man that is a crisp piano tone mm-hmm. for 1950s so i guess we're in this we're in the no we're not in the cbs era yet no complete atlantic recordings completed yes that makes sense so i have no idea <laughs> i have no idea if this was actually on an album or if this was just something that like he recorded and it never got put on anything and and they just finally were got it on here when it was they were cleaning out the vault again the fact that his discography is such a mess to try and rifle through doesn't help things much mm-hmm. but i would say that no matter what this was definitely a deep cut ooh yeah, and it like he doesn't sing. No, it's instrumental. He has a he has a very healthy amount of instrumental jazz music. Again, like I said, I could probably do a whole episode just on his instrumental jazz stuff. That would be cool. It would definitely be different. Mm-hmm. It definitely and would. Though it's it's something I'm considering I might do at some point. Uh, I would, I would really love to be able to um, play like this on some level, because imagine like the synchronization that the the different musicians have to have to be able to follow each other, and you know, it, it just it the song evolves on its own. I mean, obviously, by the time they get to recording, they figured out every single note and every single everything, but. But to be able to come up with something like this. Well, I mean, the heart of jazz is improvisation. Right. And 
and to be able to improvise something that sounds remotely close to this, the, the amount of um, control you have to have over you, the music. Yeah, Ray Charles himself has said that the people that truly know how to play and are the best of what they do are the people that play jazz. Yeah, that's true. And these people he probably either just met or hadn't known for too long. No, he actually did have a consistent lineup of people that he regularly played with. Okay, never mind. Okay, disregarding <laughs> that point, disregarding that point, even still, right? It's some very complicated situation. You all have to be in sync for something that's uh, a little bit more complicated, and you have two or three takes. Mm-hmm. Oh man, and it's just like it sounds just so crisp and clear and perfect and 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 this is good quality for today. Yes, it is. In my opinion. Maybe maybe somebody can can come around and show me a counterexample, but this sounds it I'm even at the audio quality that you would expect from something today. And part of that is probably because it was remastered, but you got to have good stems to have a good remaster in the first. That's day. true. You can't you can't just take whatever you want and remaster it and expect it to be better. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So someone tried to remaster black metal, that probably wouldn't go well. You'd have to do some re-recording. Yeah. Well, because the thing about black metal is you record the whole thing perfectly, you mix it so everything sounds nice. And then you play it through like a Nokia and then record it through like a computer microphone. In a dank cave in the middle of the woods. Right. So the problem is now you have one track. So they can't ma remaster one track. You have to re-record <laughs> everything. That's what, that's what they did with uh, St. Anger. They re-recorded everything. And it sounds fairly good. They they didn't record it. Someone else but did. Someone else. I say they as musicians. Musicians re-recorded it, and it sounds fairly good. But this is like this isn't a re-recording. This is a remaster, just a remaster. And there's no like sour notes or like hmm that wasn't quite in time. But you know we'll forgive it. No, it's like it's it's it is so on point. It's it's impressive. The the technical ability. Anyway, again, there's a reason why they the people that lived during this time were legends, and it's almost just like our modern society has lost so much of that. Yes, and the way that way people record today. Yes, it's easier. Yes, you can do more things, but also at the same time, there is a level of quality that has been lost. So, speaking of legends, I assume this next song is legendary. Yes, I alluded to it in our first segment. You did, and I kind of I kind of recognized it like maybe it was in a commercial or something. Well, the the way that a lot of people today know this song as is uh Kanye West did a had a number 1 hit where he sampled this song uh, for uh, a song called Gold Digger. And that's actually the way that my wife recognized this song. 
I might know it from that. And the but... the the, lo- the level of meta that's in this is that uh, Jamie Fox is actually the one that sings the sample of this because he slightly changes the lyrics. <laughs> oh my goodness! And it was and it was right on the heels of of Ray being released, the movie. The layers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. So, you know, it was kind of they they were able to kind of almost capitalize on while he was in the zeitgeist at that moment, mm-hmm. and and get a number one hit out of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I got a woman. Is. Yeah, it's a legendary song. This is kind of one of those like all-time great songs that you know just deserves its own legacy because like I said, it's the song that everyone usually credits with being the song that invented soul music. That true R&B. Because again, R&B existed before. Mess Around came out before this and it was on the R&B charts. Mhm. But R and B didn't sound like this. This has a uh, this has a a spiritual quality to it, and the reason for it is that it's actually based off of a traditional hymn. What do you mean based off? As in, he took the the melody and uh, just changed some of the words. To make it a a secular song, and so this is why a lot of people didn't quite like that. Yes, because it's like if if a normal churchgoer heard this, they would it would be like if someone took um, uh, "Shout to the Lord." If anyone remembers that old Hillsong classic, and then just put like intentionally like uh, like secular sexual lyrics on top of it people would in christian circles would be very offended yeah that's fair yeah it's the it's the same idea Mm -hmm. that that at least makes sense so again like that that's what i was saying before i was just like i understand why people were offended but also at the same time like you know he was really doing something completely new and revolutionary. Yeah. That, and the entire genre was really born from it. That uh, that critique is a little bit more intellectual than, oh, they say 666, they must worship the devil. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit uh, more of a, uh, of a reasonable uh, complaint. Yeah. yeah. But boy, are are we sure glad that he did it? <laughs> yeah, because I mean, here we are. Here we are talking about it. And man, yeah, it's it's kind of got. I don't know if I have the whole grip on what Motown sounds like, but I feel like it's kind of within that, like sphere. Oh yeah, well this is this is about ten years before Motown was even founded. And it sounds kind of like this, like um, like would this fit? No, I would actually say not. Okay, see, I'm getting there, kind of. 
uh, Motown had a bit more of an obviously uh, white pop sound to it. Mm-hmm. Where things on Motown, the reason why Motown was so successful is because it, it was, it sounded like white radio, but then at the same time, it was distinct enough in its flavor to kind of catch people's ear and go, oh, this is, this sounds like something different. Mm. Okay. This, this is pure soul music through and through. It's the reason why that, even though this was his first, because this topped the, the R&B charts. It was his first number one hit on any kind of chart. But it didn't even register on the pop charts. Didn't even get into the into the bottom. Wow. So that just, that shows, like, really in a way how segregated everything was during that time. Mm-hmm. That something could be a number one R&B hit and not even chart on the pop charts. Wow. It's kind of an insane thing when you think about it. It is. Because n- nowadays, you almost can't separate the two. Mm-hmm. And, there, and there's, there's plenty of other genres now where it's also completely opposite Mm or something that something that's big in one genre doesn't even register in the pop area well that's how that's how rock is the rock charts like sure something gets big on the rock charts it's barely going to make any kind of uh blip on the pop charts for sure for sure and yet there's plenty of people that that love rock music even today's rock music Mm mm-hmm and God bless those people, but there there were plenty of people back then that loved R and B, and 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 enough to where I guess that that musical movement, if you were to call it that, kept going. Oh and yeah, and eventually took over the pop charts. Yes, I would say definitely by the sixties. That was that was the point when it completely crossed over and that's actually a little hint hint spoiler something we'll talk a little bit about next week Ooh, we're, gonna, okay. we're gonna we're gonna go to motown next week and talk about mm-hmm. their uh their the the undisputed uh champions of motown Ooh, i mm, i got a feeling that I may know who we're going to talk about next week, but that'll be next week. Mm, well, I guess I'll, uh, whenever we uh, stop the recording, I'll ask you if you're correct or not. But no one knows better than Lucas who we're going to talk about next week. Oh, my. Okay, that you were really reaching there. I was really reaching. But here we are, hard times. No one knows better than I. We're on the complete Atlantic recording compilation 150 song thing you want to talk about a travesty okay i do i guess the fact that this song is a rarity that didn't make it not only on an album but was never a single because this is an astonishingly good song oh yeah 
Like, the mm-hmm. fact that this literally got buried by time, again, unless it was on some other previous re- album that just has been scrubbed from from streaming. Mm-hmm. Like, I... Uh, I don't know how this uh, this got swallowed up because this 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 could have been a hit song, mm-hmm. and I mean he gives this song everything he's got. This this sounds at least lyrically a little bit more than just hey everybody let's have a good time. Yeah, it's correct. Yeah, I mean, well, again, another big part of Ray Charles' music is his, uh, is that he played and sung the blues. Right. So really, this is, this is very much a, uh, a blues song. Oh, that is so true. Yeah. It's, it's all about, you know, it's all about hard times. It's about, you know, life beating you down. And yeah. pretty much accepting the fact that as long as you're alive, you're going to have hard times. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, take it from me. No one knows better than I do that life is hard. But yes. what really struck me about this song was the autobiographical nature of it. Ooh, I figured that was the case. Because I mean, he's it starts off with my, which, in a way, is almost like a cliche now at this point in music. Because everyone's mom, mom mama once told me, <laughs> mama she had to stop me. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. My mama told me when I was young. Yeah, it's just it's it's one of those overused things and yet in in his life, his mom really did tell him these things. Mm-hmm. She was the one that taught him that hard times are going to come. Something she told him is that, you know, that the things that are guaranteed in this life are happiness and sorrow, joy and pain, and that you just ha- you can't have one without the other. And so you have to learn now to accept that and then figure out how you're going to push through it. Yeah. And so uh, he definitely is speaking from experience. Even though he had a lot of success and was able to accomplish a lot of things, he still had to live a very hard life he had to work harder than most other people did to get what he got Mm -hmm. and he had his share of heartache and trouble along the way for sure oh i can imagine i mean the music industry is pretty bad now but i mean well uh one of the things that i didn't mention about his childhood was that he uh watched his younger brother die. Oh. I know that's that's a big downer to just yeah. throw in, but 
Uh, and that's one of the central points of the movie as well is the nightmare he keeps having about reliving that moment of uh, his brother swimming in a in a laundry bucket and then drowning and he pretty much kind of like just stands there and because he's because he's he panics and he can't move and pretty much just by the time he goes and gets help it's too late mm. that's times yeah there you go very similar so wow um yeah there's it's not i i don't like it when other artists will try and and do songs like this talking about like how hard life is and it's just like you're you're not drawing from that personal experience i don't believe you i don't believe that you've went through hard times and part of it is in the way that you deliver the vocal oh yeah oh let me tell you what he goes for the throat yeah on those yes mhm those are up there and very distorted and i i don't know how he he keeps rolling like an unstoppable but slow moving train that is just i don't know his his, his piano stays in time his vocals stay in time he stays in pitch i mean it's just like He's got the right tone at every moment. Oh my goodness. Like if this is actually a deep cut, you're right. This is that's like a crime. Mm-hmm. That is just that is so sad. Oh man. Cause this is this is a pretty good song. I was gonna say that. I mean, this is just I mean all of them are really good songs, but like this is just wow. Yeah, I, wow. whenever I got to this point in the listening where I was going through this part of his discography, mm-hmm. I was already expecting, I was just like, I'm sure I've already heard all the songs I need to hear. I'm not going to probably find a uh, an all-time great in this. And then I heard that and I was just like, oh, crap. What's this doing here in the rarities cleaning out the vault? Yeah. It so happens, it, was a, it was it was a it was a pleasant surprise to find. Yes, yes. Well, our final song has been on my mind for a while. Mm-hmm. This is Georgia on my mind. So this is our CBS release. So are we in sixty one? Um. Ish. Ish. Okay. It's again, or I guess it would I guess it would have been after sixty one because that was his last Atlanta thing. Yeah, it was I the timeline is kind of tough to nail down. But I do know that it was I'm pretty sure it was released in sixty one. Cause this was like the one of the first things he did with CB, CBS. Mm. And this was his first number one hit. Mm-hmm. And this has kind of gone on to become like his above all signature song. Really? Mm-hmm. 
So is this technically a dip into the country? Yes. Again, country sounded a lot different uh, back then. But he always wanted to do a kind of like a schmaltzy sounding like with the big strings and the chorus. Like that was something that he always wanted to do. Oh, man, me too. (laughs) And for the most part, I find when I'm doing other people's discographies, this is the part in their discography where I like really get depressed because when most people try and sing stuff that sounds like this, they can't, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's usually really boring and really uninspired, but man, this song, this song is a, is such a powerful and great song yet at the same time, it doesn't have to do much. Yeah, it really doesn't. It's all in the it's all in the little add-ins, mm-hmm. the little the like the swelling strings and like the little piano line here and that kind of thing. I think the big thing in this is that you don't lose the character of Ray's voice in this song. Mm-hmm. Like when other people sing these types of songs it's easy for it to just sound bland and uh, middle of the road to where it doesn't have any uniqueness to it. It sounds, it sounds like anyone else could be singing this. And yet like with this song, you're listening to and just like, that's unmistakably Ray Charles and he's making it a Ray Charles performance. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense at all. No, I know what you mean. I mean, because uh, imagine like Tom Araya trying to sing this. It just wouldn't make sense. Well, not even in that but aspect necessarily, but like whenever it I was sound looking... like him. No. It was, like he would have to completely change the way he would sing. It's just, it doesn't, you wouldn't recognize it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a bit of an extreme example. It's, I like to talk at extremes. You know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but like even something like like when I was doing the Aretha Franklin episode and she literally had a long long list of songs that sounded like this she's a great singer but these aren't the kinds of songs that support her voice very well oh yeah and so just listening to them was just like you felt like you were hearing the same song over and over and over again and nothing stood apart from the previous and honestly, I feel like, in a way, Georgia on my mind is what a lot of those artists and songs were trying to chase. Wow. This feels like what they were trying to replicate. So this is a, this is a real trendsetter. Yeah, I would say so. So what what's the inspiration for this song? Is Georgia a real person um so this is an old standard from like the 30s so ray didn't write this oh but it is it's actually about the state of georgia oh that's even cooler actually and it's it's gone on to become the the official state song 
This version? Yes. Well, the song in of itself, okay. but this this has whenever they had the ceremony of in of making it the official song, Ray attended that ceremony and performed it. So I mean, in a way, yes. Oh yeah. That's super cool. And I mean, honestly, no one else's version stacks up. Although Willie Nelson got a minor country hit out off of it. But this is this is Ray's song. And he actually was initially born in Georgia. And then moved while he was still a baby to Florida, where he spent the majority of his childhood. So it's kind of a we we ended this where we began in this episode, really. Yeah, in a way. That's kind of cool. But yeah, this is, uh, for most people, this is his, his iconic central song. Mm -hmm. This is this, this was his, I would say this was his biggest hit. And like, I feel like if there was like one song that like at every concert he had to play, it would be Georgia on my mind. Hmm. Okay. It was the it was the cross it was the moment when he finally crossed over into mainstream. When he quote unquote sold out. Yeah. Hmm. So cool. There you go. That's Ray Charles for you. Yep. There it is. So with that, we'll take another break. When we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about Mr. Ray Charles. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. Usually, Lucas introduces this segment, so I 100% don't know what I'm doing. Um, we just talked about <laughs> Ray Charles's the six songs that we've selected for this episode. Uh, once again, if you want to listen to those, Spotify link in the description. We highly recommend that you would listen to those songs. It would be such a shame. Yes, Lucas says that every episode. It would be such a shame if you got to the end of the episode and you didn't even listen to the songs. And now it's time to get into our final thoughts. So obviously we had our first thoughts about Ray Charles, and we do that every episode. We like to talk about if some if our perspectives have changed on the artist, on the genre they represent, and, and other parts of music as a whole. And I don't want to I don't want to throw too many curveballs. I'll actually go ahead and start because I think I think Lucas, your final thoughts are going to be a little bit more interesting than mine. Um, so obviously, I started as a five. I didn't know a whole lot about Ray Charles. Well, to say I didn't know a whole lot, I knew nothing. Um, so I guess to say I didn't know a whole lot would still be true. And obviously what I'd say had been the only song I'd really heard. But man, learning about his life, there's just some episodes where where the first section is just so much more interesting than you'd expect. Because, I mean, him being blind, but still completely 
autonomous and like riding his motorcycle and uh, all of that stuff and being able to like deal with his circumstances that way and become a very very influential musician which is already something very very right over two very difficult things for a lot of people and honestly like coming out very very victorious i mean he was inducted into the hall of the rock and roll hall of fame first year that they had inductees that's it's just so crazy to 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 learn these little like facts about artists that you're just like oh my gosh i had no idea they were so much of a legend and they did so many impressive things the of his musical knowledge and abilities um, compositionally and the all the different types of artists he would play with that's the sign of a true musician not not just artist because i mean not to say successful artist but it's easy to be an artist like it's easy to come up with an idea that you like and be like oh yeah this is really cool but to to come up with successful, good-sounding music um, in multiple genres, to play it with other musicians live successfully, the amount of work that you have to put into good quality recordings at this time, it's all around, he's, he's a very impressive, he's got a very impressive resume. Um, and that's really exciting. So I'm, I'm, I'm at a six this type of music, I don't, I don't want to say it doesn't tickle my fancy, but I, have, I don't have a lot of context for this type. It's really hard to do. But I, I really enjoyed listening to the songs over and over again because I would listen to, and I'm finding this happens more and more as we get through the past, that I'll listen through the set and I'll be like, oh, that's pretty good. And maybe that's just me growing in my appreciation of like all types of music. But I would put this set on repeat as well. And man, I don't know. I don't know which song is going to But if I had to choose right now, it's probably going to be Georgia on my mind. I don't want to do the very simple answer of like, oh, this is his biggest song. So we'll pick that one. But obviously, like Hard Times, My Melancholy Baby, those were great. Those were fantastic. I'd never heard them before. And it's just, it, it, it instantly grew on me. It was great. It was just a great set. It was a great introduction to Ray Charles and talking about the music of the 50s and early 60s and, and something that we don't talk about very often, which is very, very fun to do. Um, yeah, so that is my that is my final thought. I know that's not earth shattering. If you're looking for earth shattering, it doesn't have to be to listen to. It's, it's such pressure to put on yourself. <laughs> if you're if you're looking for earth shattering things to listen to, then then maybe you should listen to the songs. So or or maybe listen to Lucas's final thought, which may not be earth shattering either, but. I'm sure. No, you, you do this to me every week. You you build this up like this is going to be some transcendental, like your entire worldview is going to change. Hey, sometimes sometimes you get to talking and then it, you 
you say something pretty profound. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if that'll happen every time. <laughs> um, so, Ray Charles. A man that I, I took the presumption of saying that I knew who he was. And really finding out that I really had... I underestimated him. Because, like, I had the, almost in a way, misfortune of knowing him through the movie first. Because it didn't at all paint a complete picture of who he was as an artist. And I took that for granted as me knowing just like, oh yeah, I know who Ray Charles is. I've seen the movie. That not at all makes me any kind of... (laughs) authority on who he was as an artist but now after actually taking the time to go through his music and to listen to what he's done and to study what his life was really like um i can definitely say now that i am a fan i also typically do not listen to much r&b and soul or even music from the 50s in general but i am trying to amend that and i'm finding that the more that i do the more i'm finding stuff that i'm just like wow this is really great music and i uh i'm going to continue my journey of listening to more and more music from uh from this time period and from these genres so thank you ray charles i would say that i would say that i'm still at a six but a very solid and informed six. It's, it's, it, it's this number system. I feel like it's kind of flawed because you have to, you have to, you have to, there's so many factors that go into it. Like, there's ranking no an artist. Yeah. And so when I put somebody like Ray Charles at a six, that doesn't mean, that I don't think he's deserving of a seven by anyone else's standards. Yeah. It's just like to, to be at a six, like that means that I respect you as an artist. I understand your significance. I like, I know the part that you play and if your name is thrown around in conversation, I'd be like, yes, I know that guy. I have listened to some of his music. I think he's really great kind of thing but you're not gonna necessarily go out and and listen to their music kind of thing i i think it's one of those things where it's like if you found yourself in a situation where their music was on you'd be like yes i like this i'm gonna sit down i'm gonna intentionally listen and enjoy it oh yeah maybe not yet as much like i'm gonna go seek it out that uh that complete atlantic recordings eight and a half hours that would be nice like i don't want to say background music because i feel like that i feel like i'm just delegating it to background music but it's just it seems like both the songs we had off of that compilation was very very organic and it just felt like it felt like easy listening Mm -hmm. and they're like that some you need an easy listening artist that you can turn on and kind of turn your brain off but if you want to listen to the songs then you can get something very very interesting out of it 
and he sits in that weird zone that not a lot of people sit in. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a good way to put it. So, anyway. Well, um, my favorite song, I mean, to me, I think what I say is just like, it's, to me, it's undeniably great. Yeah, that's true. The one that just like, it was the one that when I first started really listening to him, that that was the one that I immediately pointed out. I was just like, that's something special. That is a great song. And it's the one that I enjoy coming back to the most. Makes sense. Harry's favorite was I've Got a Woman, which I didn't expect from him. Hmm. But a good choice, Harry. <laughs> you have done well, son. I yeah, I would have not expected that either. I I thought he would have picked like what I'd say because it's got the the part where everybody talks in it. It's got the funny part where he goes, "Hey." <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can always count on him picking his pick just because it's silly sound. Yeah, not but not this time. He, I would. That's one where he like legitimately liked it. Interesting. Ooh, wow. My son can surprise me sometimes. Yeah. Yep. Like uh, well, walking around eating cherry tomatoes like they're candy. Yo. Did you see that on Instagram? I did see that, and I'm like, oh, no. I could never do that. Me neither. Oh, boy. But there you go. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you listened to, please hit that subscribe button. We have new episodes every Monday at midnight. Uh, I already kind of gave the teaser for uh, next week's episode, so... um... If you want some good old 60s action, then uh, make sure you tune in next week. And uh, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. That is the best way to get in touch with us. Let us know what artists you would like for us to talk about in a future episode. I never even brought up the fact that this is our fan-selected one for for the month. Oh. <laughs> uh, this was another winner of one of the polls that I threw up. I had put up either uh, Ray Charles or Sam Cooke who was the other kind of ground-laying R&B artist of the 50s. And we will definitely do an episode on him at some point. But we ended up doing Ray first, because that's what y'all wanted. So thank you guys for that. And uh, yeah, if uh, if you like the podcast so much that you just want to you just want to give us all your money, then uh, (laughs) head on over to Patreon where you can get access to early and exclusive content, including the always entertaining Bad Music Podcast, where we talk about an artist's six worst songs. And sorry, Ray, you will not be exempt from this (laughs) ceremony. Yeah. So um, we hope to see you guys there. Make sure you go check out those songs. The way you can is to click on the other link in the description that takes you to our page. And that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Keep on listening to good music. Good music.